How's everybody doing? Good. My name is Josh, and I'm on the teaching team. I get to teach this morning. I also lead Next Gen, so all the little people, I get to be a part of their lives as well. But I'm very excited to teach this passage. We are in the series, Love Walked Among Us. And here's how I want to set it up. Matthew started our service with, worship is meant to, he used the word, reframe our lives around the true story of the world. What he means by that is there are all these lies in our life that are telling us what life is about. The good life is this. The American dream is this. Whatever it may be, pushing us towards a certain view of the world, and most of them are lies because we live in a world where Satan, father of lies, has dominion and rules and speaks. And yet we come together to remind our hearts that there is a true story of the world that God is at the center of, and we reframe in this moment of worship. But here's how we also reframe our lives. When you see someone or something that so impacts you that you never, ever forget it. So for me, my wife and I had our first kid in 2010, so eight years ago. We had no idea what we were doing, as you don't when you have your first kid, nor did we claim to. We had a dog, and we were very average dog owners. That's the extent of our nurturing, very average. Charlie was locked in the bathroom back home, whining for us, and we were... Not worried about him. And then we were given this kid, emergency C-section. Elijah comes in the world. And I remember just being in that room thinking, what? What do we do now? Like, it, it was a weird weight that I'd never felt before. And we were both kind of panicked. Like, I'm helping her recover from her surgery. We got this kid. We're supposed to do all this stuff. And, okay. and the first nurse comes in, 12-hour shift. And that was like 12 hours of having an angel with us. And she was firm, yet loving. She knew what she was talking about, so much so that the next day when me and Aubrey kind of got our bearings, we both literally said this, do you think she was an angel? I'm like, ah, oh, no, she, I think she's just a nurse that gets paid by this hospital. <laughs> Point being, her posture towards us, her presence in our life so impacted us that we will never, ever forget it. And that's what the Gospels are. They're telling a grand story, but they're also giving you pictures of the person of Jesus that have so impacted his immediate followers and his followers ever since. And we want to write them down, we want to hear them preach, and we want to look at the person of Jesus because Jesus is God, God is love, so if you want to know love in any capacity, you have to look at Jesus. Love walked among us. And now we're going to look at love as he walked among us. As I've read through this passage, it's been sweet just preparing for this message. Here's the statement that came to as I was out just messing around with my family. And this word came into my mind. That's what what this is after. And here's kind of the big idea. Love is a posture. Does love include words? Yes. Does it include actions and gifts and maybe five love languages? Sure, all that stuff. But love is a posture of someone towards another that impacts you. And Jesus had a loving posture, not once, not twice, but all the time. So that's what we're looking at, another one of the stories of Jesus. So I want to pray together and ask God to meet us in this moment. So let's pray. Jesus, you are love, and you walked among us, so you didn't hide your love. You showed us your love. Give us eyes and ears and senses to see and hear and feel and experience your love through this story, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Everyone said 
So here's what we're doing. Love is a posture. I'm going to look at four qualities of this posture of love that Jesus gives us in the story. And the first one is simply this. Love moves across boundaries. Where do I see that? If you have your Bibles open still, go to 4 verse 1 there. We're going to read the first eight verses, and we're going to see where I get this from. Verse 1 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So crowds are coming. He's doing his work. He's in the bustle of life, and he's just kind of moving on. Where does he go? And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. How does this meeting even take place? It happens because Jesus moves, and he moves across un comfortable boundaries. I see three boundaries in this little section here. The first is the Samaritan Jew boundary. If you don't know the Old Testament, that's fine. It's about the Jewish people and God speaking through them. But at some point in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation got split. There was a north and there was a south. And the north kind of got decimated and kind of mixed up with the Assyrian Empire. And Judah in the south kind of stayed and held. That's where David was and Jerusalem and all this. And now up here, what we have is the Samaritans. So it's like kind of Jewish, but they're in a different location. They're not near the Holy Land, Jerusalem. They don't have all the real Jewish stuff. They're kind of, kind of Jews, but now nah, let's just call them Samaritans. It's kind of like if you're in a family, I have a blended family, steps and halves and all this. Like, you know, sometimes they're, they're, there's like a, this is the family. And then if you're in a bad environment, this isn't mine, but the steps and in-laws and stuff kind of like, we're, we're kind of on the outside. And we get it and they get it. It's just how it is. Like the Jews and the Samaritans, they're outside the people of God. They are not really Jewish people. They're Samaritans. The other thing we see is comfort. In verse 6 there, it says, Jesus was wearied from his journey and he was sitting because he was tired. The second thing love crosses is the boundary of comfort. Luke has said this multiple times as he's preached through this series. We're never going to get to love in a vacuum. Not a vacuum, a science vacuum where you get to remove all the other elements. And all you have is person A, person B, person A, love person B. Okay, I will now love this person. You're always surrounded by the elements. Tired. It's windy. It's sleep well. My stomach hurts. Jesus is not comfortable. He makes himself not comfortable. He could have just sat and taken a nap. And yet he moves because of love. Now for some of you, what you need to take from this is, I actually need to move. Like, do something. Like, get off the couch and move towards people because I am not moving towards them. That may be a takeaway. For me, as I've read this passage and just thought through my own life, I'm the opposite. I was talking to a counselor who told me, 
You live your entire life, Josh, exterior. Like you're go, 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 do, do, do. You never stop and assess your own emotions and feelings. You're always going, going, going. And I said, and the problem is, (laughs) I see no issues with what you just said. You're going, going, going. For me, loving people in my life, a boundary I have to cross is to stop. Take in the moment. Do the stuff that I think is stupid. (laughs) Because I'd rather be going and doing and moving. But love moves across boundaries. Just, Just hear it this way. There's a natural way you go about life. If the Bible's true, which I think it is, it says most of the love in your life that's going to impact others and you is going to happen when you do what is unnatural to you. Jesus would say it's, it's picking up your cross and moving outside of your boundary of comfort. The third one we see is the simple male-female, which seems weird to our culture, but if you jump ahead, look at verse 27 so we can see the context. So his disciples went away. Jesus is sitting here. He's having a conversation with this woman. They come back. They came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman because you don't talk to women in this culture. There's a separation. Song of Solomon is a book in the Old Testament about love and marriage and intimacy. And there's a section where the wife says, I wish you were my brother so I could kiss you on the lips. Because kinship, brother, sister, family relationships could have PDA and love each other and be affectionate. If you were not that, like a husband and wife, you had to have a distance. You had to have a separation. This culture separated male and female. Certain cultures are still like this. We have friends from Somalia who come over, and the wife is so smiling, such a good time, and yet I can't shake her hand or ever hug her. He crossed this boundary towards this woman. Just fascinating. Now, what does Jesus do to initiate this relationship? Go to verse 7. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Doesn't seem that profound, but the creator of all things in the flesh and the person of Jesus initiates this relationship with this woman by asking her for something. Jesus could, in every instance, be the provider, the giver, and have a very one-way relationship. Some bad, like, parent parent-kid relationships that move on into the adult years are like this, where their parents holding kind of a leverage over them because they're always the ones giving. It, it, it can go sideways. So pastors, one thing we do a lot is we meet with people. We meet at coffee shops and restaurants, and it's a good gig. <laughs> My wife has this comment she likes to jab me with whenever we're driving around. And she sees a coffee shop or a restaurant she's never seen before. She always kind of says, how is that place? And I say, I haven't been there, but thanks. I'll go tomorrow. I'll make a note of it. We meet with people a lot. And I was talking to a pastor who comes from a, came from an unhealthy sort of church leadership culture. And he was trained to always pay in those meetings. Why? To always have the upper hand of relationship. 
where if well, this happens a lot with me, they offer to pay. You're all free to do the same with me as well, but <laughs> they pick up the bill, I pick up the bill. They pick up the bill, I pick up the bill. I pick up the bill, I pick up the bill. Why? Because it's a relationship. And Jesus meets with this woman and says, can I have something from you? That's beautiful. Our Muslim friends have no concept for a God that would ask for something. No concept. This is only in biblical Christianity. Jesus could pay every time, but he lets us pick up the bill. Not only does Jesus establish this relationship, but he lets her set the stage. So this takes us to our second point is this. Jesus, in his love, he adapts. He moves, and then as he moves in, he adapts to the person or persons he's with, which sounds like, what do you mean? He contextualizes. He lets them kind of dictate the ingredients for how the conversation is going to go, because again, he's God. He could squash everyone in every moment with his words and his truth, but he lets her kind of create the environment. A few things I know, and we'll walk through this, look at this lady, but here's, here's what this lady brings to the table. She is talkative, direct, brash. She's got like this spunk about her, you might say. She's not afraid. How many of you women are like that? I love women like that. My mom is that. Some of my greatest memories as I think back to my childhood is my mom zinging my dad because she is amazing. She's witty. She's bold. She doesn't back down. It's beautiful. And I married a woman who has similar tendencies. <laughs> and I love it because she lets me know how she's feeling. She's not meek, mild, all these other words that we think the Bible has plastered all over women. I'll tell you how it is. Jesus. God of the universe, let me tell you how it is. That's, how, that's what we're dealing with this in this woman. The other thing, she has strong religious opinions. She keeps bringing up this Samaritan Jew thing. She's convinced. Just like every conversation we have with people who are 100% sure of the thing they've thought about for 30 seconds, she is very convinced. She's pretty sure of herself. And at the same time, tell me if this doesn't ring a bell, she is also hiding Even the time of day she goes out, she's out at noon, which seems like that's the odd time to hide. It's a terrible hide-and-seek game. Most of the women go in the morning, cool of the day, together. She goes when no one's going to be around. There's a hiding aspect to the conversation she's bringing. Before I jump into this text, just this is, as a next-gen pastor, parenting teens, if you don't get this, you're not going to parent your teen, meaning letting your teenager set the ingredients for how the conversation's going to taste, which stinks because I've got little kids and I get to control and use my force and my will and I get to control, control, control. But people tell me, and I see it every day, there's a day coming where that control goes away and I've got to be able to discuss with them on their clock when they're ready in the language they want to use. You're like, that sounds hard, yeah? But we watch Jesus do it perfectly. It's love. Love adapts. How do we see this? Jump into the passage again. Look at verse 9. She sets the stage with her brashness. I love it. She just jumps right in. 
Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. How? She doesn't say, why are you doing this? Like, what's your motivation? She says, how? Like, how is this even possible? How how is this happening? You know your people and my people, like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. you. How, how is this happening? She's Tell him how it is. She sets the stage. Jesus responds, verse 10. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus doesn't respond with, woman, I'm God. Pipe down. They're sitting next to a well. Let's talk about water then. Let's, how, what can I use that will make Okay, let's just talk about water. And Jesus starts it. Let's talk about this water thing. And he creates this curiosity-inducing image of water that's better than water. And he starts to draw her in using her language, her setting. It's beautiful. No one responds. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? The idea of living water is a river as opposed to dead, stale well water. Where do you get this rushing, never-ending, flowing water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She kind of grasps, grasps the thing. Okay, water, living, but she's still missing it. But Jesus is in this conversation, adapting, speaking, inducing her curiosity. Just note, the book of John is written to a sort of Greek audience, so he uses many images. It's a great book to start with if you're new to faith. It talks about walking with God is like eternal life. It's like abundant life. It's like living in the light as opposed to the darkness. It's like having bread that always satisfies. It's like having water that is always rush. He uses all these images. With this woman, he's using this water image, and he's sticking there. We see his response, verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to, there it is, eternal life. Jesus fleshes out the image even more. Eternal life. Never ending life if you drink this water that I'm talking about. And the conversation goes where you hope it would go. She responds. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water any more. In evangelism training, this is called a win. <laughs> it's where you want the conversation to go. In youth ministry, I crave these moments. I get, should I smoke weed and tell my parents, or should I smoke weed and keep it from my parents? <laughs> Let me think about that for half a second. Not Josh. My life, I want abundant, eternal life. Can you, can you help me with that? I want those moments. Jesus has that moment. It's sitting there. 
It's called a hanging curveball in baseball. You can't miss this. And what's so interesting, as I've read through this passage over and over and over again, this marks a break, a change in direction of the posture of love that Jesus has. Never again does he bring up the image of water. The whole thing this conversation is surrounded around, living water, well, whatever, that goes away. And Jesus says this to the woman. Go call your husband and come here. That's fascinating. This love is moving towards her. It's adapting. It's speaking her language. And then this shift happens. And he says, oh, you want the gift that I just fleshed out for you? Go call your husband. And then come here. Which takes us to our third point of a posture of love. Love confronts in hard conversations. Let me just put it in our language. Jesus has this conversation with you somehow, some way, through a person, through people. And he, you capture the picture that Jesus is trying to paint. It's eternal life. Well, yeah, I want eternal life. It's bread that always satisfies. Of course I want to be filled with bread that never satisfies. I want that. It's walking with God forever. I want that. I want what the Bible is promising. Go call your husband. In this context, what else? If it said go, fill in the blank, and Jesus got to write exactly what it is for you that he gets to turn the page on to you with. I wrote down a few. Go get your bank statements. Let's talk about what you've been eating the last week, month. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about water. Now we're talking about food? Yes, that's what Jesus does. Because he's awesome. You know, go, okay, let's, you want the gift? Go get your teenage daughter, please. And let's just talk with you two. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I just wanted a drink. Do you really? Because we're going to have to address the terrible parenting going on in your house. Jesus confronts. I want the gift. That's what I want. Okay. Go get your husband. You feel the weight of that? Like, just the woman is my mother as far as just I'll, I'll tell you how it is. And then to see my mother retreating. Uh, it's like that, that doesn't happen. It happens when you get confronted in love by Jesus. Let's just read it so we can see it fleshed out. Starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Ouch. The woman answered up, I have no husband. Still brash, less talkative. Only four words as opposed to many more previously. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Let me bring you back to the religion thing. But you say, that word you there is a plural. You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Just go get your husband. 
What makes just conversations hard in general? Again, we don't live in a vacuum. I wrote down a few. We're dealing with sin and brokenness. Like a confusing, broken, twisted, distorted world. Parenting is really, really easy in two seasons of life. When you have zero kids. One lady recently said, my son is the best parent he knows. He has zero kids. And it's still fairly easy when you have one kid. How do you discipline Elijah? Easy. When he talks back to me, let's go handle this. In discipline. Now you've got four running in. It's him. It's him. It's How do you parent? You don't. You just say, go outside. <laughs> we'll sort it out at judgment day. But for now, <laughs> I've got nothing to offer. We did a parenting conference, and all the parents with one kid are like, tell me more. How do I do this? Tell me more. And all the multiple kid parents are like. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. We live in a busted world. Here's another one. There's more to the story than what is being revealed. For this woman and for every conversation we're ever in. I mean, parenting, trying to get to the bottom of, okay, we had some neighborhood kids over yesterday and they're like ready to go to blows. My wife's watching through the blinds and they're like, yeah, you want, I want, uh. she comes in, what happened? Well, it was totally him. And we're like, ah, oh, silly kids. And then you talk to adults. Whose fault was it? Well, it wasn't mine. Well, whose was it? Well, I've got a few options for you. And then I see this pop up with this woman and just in our life, God, religious, churchy baggage, just kind of clouds our way of seeing everything. Well, let's talk about who are you living with again? And you two are married? No, you're not married? Well, the church's stance on sexuality and relationships, like, ah, you see that? You can dodge anything you want, which takes us to another thing I see. Truth is used to shade lies all the time. One author who was reading through this passage said, devious people, speaking of this woman, don't usually lie. It's too risky. Instead, they deceive by the way they are using the truth. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Lie, truth, it's using truth in a deceptive way. There you go. Now, here's what I want to stop for a second and just let us kind of understand how to read the Bible with a little more nuance. Hebrew narrative, Old Testament, New Testament, moves very fast. You get, it, it, it speeds through stuff. So like I went and researched, took me about half a second, research is a strong word to use, but I Googled. <laughs> My extensive research team went all over the world Bill Clinton's biography, autobiography, is 1,008 pages long. George W. Bush, 540 pages. The King of the Universe has four biographies, and you can breeze through them in 100 pages. What does that mean? It means the way they're telling a story leaves a lot up for interpretation. It lets you, it kind of draws you into the story by not filling in every page with adjective upon adjective upon adjective. It tells you the story, which leaves this woman at the mercy of us. 
to interpret her. And we can say, well, you know what this woman's like? I'll tell you what she's like, which often comes from a male saying, you know what, she's a scandalous, adulterous, fill in the blank. Is there truth to that? She's had five husbands. She's on her sixth man. She's talking to a seventh. Maybe. But is that the whole story? The issue in this woman's life is her sin and her sexual appetite that is not satisfied. Eh, seems too simple. Or if you come from a, even those of you in the room who have dealt with abuse, there's a very real chance this woman was abused. In this culture, males could divorce without any questions. It's an abusive, male-dominated society. So is it this guy abused her, this guy abused her, this guy abused her, this guy abused her, this guy abused her. These guys were terrible. She was this pristine example of faithfulness. You get the tension that Jewish writers leave you in. Here's the reality. It's probably both, which doesn't change the story one bit. It tells you what we live in is a complicated, broken, sinful world where we have sinned and we have been sinned against and we sit in the rubble of this brokenness that we've all chosen and people have chosen for us. And we look at this woman and we think, man, man, I don't know her story, but she's sitting there. She's built her life on the broken pieces this world has to offer. And she's sitting there holding them. And this man is exposing it. And what Jesus is doing is saying, you can't hold on to the stuff of the world and reach out and grab on to true life. You got to drop this stuff. You got to let go. Which moves us to our fourth quality of a posture of love. Love invites us to change our posture. What do I mean by that? You see this in everyday life. My youngest son, Ozzy, 15 months old, he knows dada and ball. Dada, ball. Dada, ball. But he loves his mama. And he is a rascal for days. But when he gets in his mom's arms, a little passy in his mouth, Hmm, you hear him moaning. Hmm. Why? Because my wife's love has changed his posture, and he sinks, and he loves. Isn't that beautiful? And Jesus is inviting us to change our posture. Except here's the rub. American Christianity, what most of us walk in this room with a kind of chirping in our ear or a megaphone in our ear, says this. Is Jesus good? Yeah. Is he awesome? Yeah. Is he loving? Of course. Is he great? Yeah. Is he worthy to be worshipped? Well, now you're talking about categories. I got, I don't, I just like them. It's like teenagers with Instagram on the phone. How do you show somebody you like their Instagram posts? This is what I watch with teenagers all the time. So they haven't liked something yet. I love that thing so much, I'm going to double-click it. I love... 
I'm not making fun of teens. That's American Christianity with Jesus. And Jesus switches the conversation and now invites this woman into something deeper, something more profound. And that's what we see in this last section here. Go to verse 21. And just as a Bible reader, I'm going to read through what Jesus says. And I want you to listen for the key word. He makes it fairly obvious. obvious. (laughs) Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's the key word there? Worship. Now, church language, we use worship to talk about singing. That's more praises according to the word in the Bible. Worship in the Bible is prostrate before someone who is more worthy than you. Or, I take everything I have, I lay it at your feet. Love has moved. It's adapted. It's confronted. And now it invites. Into what? Into worship. And the ladies hang in on every word. And I think she's even starting to get it. If you keep reading, woman said, verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, it's only one of two places he actually reveals his identity, which is beautiful. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah of Israel. I am what you will worship in spirit And in truth, worship is not about a geography or an ethnicity or a religion or a standard. It's about a person, and I am he. Will you worship me? That's beautiful. And John, the author of this, gets to write this down and just reminisce about this moment, this frame in his mind of the beauty of Jesus. And he gets to remember Remember that time I was sitting by Jacob's well? Oh, yes, Jacob's well. If you read Genesis, Jacob sees his bride there for the first time. He says, oh, I love her. So much so I'll do anything for her. I'll work for her. And his bride's dad said, okay, work for seven years. And he puts in hard labor for seven years to win this bride. And the dad, being a great businessman, said, just kidding, seven more years. And he said, happy to do it. It says, it seemed but a moment because of the love for her was so strong. And this is the moment he's watching Jesus and the woman, who's not on her first husband, her second, currently... Six men, and she's staring in the face of the seventh, which is the Bible's way of saying completion, fulfillment, rest. Sabbath is on the seventh day, and John gets to tell us this story about the woman, but way more than that, the life 
of the church as the bride of Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus in this room? Here's how it happened. Jesus moved towards you and crossed the boundaries towards you. And he adapted to you. I got saved at 18. You know what language was used to save me at 18? 18 year old boy language. And I heard it and I responded and I loved it. Why? Because Jesus moves and he adapts and he speaks our language. But he didn't leave me there just wanting to take from God. He confronted me with my sin and the church's sin. How did he confront it? He went to a cross for it and said, that's how bad that sin thing really is. And all of us who have looked to the cross for forgiveness now sit and get to worship him. And at the same moment, there's folks in this room, call yourself something other than a Christian, and you're in the same conversation with Jesus. He's moved towards you. He's speaking with you right now. And you're going to dodge it, or you're going to listen to how he confronts you as a sinner, not a perfect bride, but a bride on her seventh, scandalous, dirty, and you're going to hear him, and you're going to say, this man told the world everything I've ever done, and you're going to begin worshiping him, maybe even right now in this very service. Let's pray together. Jesus, you know everything we've ever done. And you come towards us. And you speak with us, not at us. And you hear from us. And you let us wrestle. You let us doubt. But there comes a moment where you turn it And you confront us, and you make us look at what we don't want to look at. And God, the church is simply the gathering of your people who have looked at what they did not want to look at because your hand turned our head to see what we did not want to see. In the same moment, you pointed to the cross, and we got to see the cross and its power over sin and death and all the brokenness that we all sit in. God, now we come here, worshipers of the Messiah of Israel, who did the hard work for us. God, for those in this room who have not yet faced this confrontation, convict their hearts of sin, move in them, and turn their hearts to life and to true worship for the first time in their lives. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.